We'll be in Genesis 23 for our sermon. And I'm going to read this account. It's the, the death and burial of Sarah. I'll go ahead and let you know that my goal with the sermon today is just to make a, a couple or three brief notes from this narrative of Sarah's death and burial and then use that to move on to another topic that is not a direct connection. And that's why I want to say this up front. Um, The connections that I'm going to make later in the sermon, I do want to be clear, I don't often do this, but it's not going to be a direct connection like, oh, because Genesis 23 says this, we can know this. But there are some general observations that I want to make that I believe will be beneficial and encouraging to us to consider as believers who are also sojourners on this earth while we await our heavenly home. So, priority number one is we're going to make two or three observations uh, that directly apply to the text. And then priority number two is we're going to make some general observations uh, from this text that I believe will be an encouragement to us and apply to us today in our daily lives as believers in America 2023. So, bear with me as I read this. I'm going to read the entire chapter in one reading and then we'll go from there. It is only 20 verses, so I hope nobody just had an anxiety attack or a panic attack when I said we're reading the whole chapter. It is just 20 verses. Genesis 23, starting in verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Note that, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury, uh, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So just to summarize, I know that you're reading this along with me, but Sarah has died. Abraham desires a tomb to bury her in. But Abraham desires a tomb in the land of Canaan where he is a sojourner. So he makes a plea and they say, hey, you're you're a prince among us or, or a prince of God among us. We acknowledge that God's favor is upon you. Pick a cave. Pick anywhere. But Abraham makes a specific request to get Ephron, the son of Zohar, for the cave of Machpelah. And he says, I will pay for it for the price of the cave. Let him give it to me. Picking up now in verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites. Of all who went into the gate of his city. Or went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. 
in the sight of my sons and of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So there was a brief friendly back and forth. But the arrangement was made. Abraham would purchase the field, purchase the cave for 400 shekels of silver. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, for those of you who have been with us throughout this study of Genesis, I would ask that you refresh yourself a bit on some of the promises given to Abraham. Right out of the gate, when Abraham was called to leave the land in which he was raised and to leave his father's household, God told him to go to a land that he would show him. Later on, a land that would be given to him. We know later, we know that to be the land of Canaan. Canaan land. If you're familiar with the Old Testament or familiar with the history of the, the people of Israel, you know that Canaan land uh, becomes a popular term there or a popular refrain. And so there is a promised land promised to Abraham and his descendants. Because Abraham was promised that he would be the father of a great nation. And that through Him, in Him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Here, Abraham is purchasing a field in Canaan. He actually desires to bury Sarah in Canaan. That is our first note of importance there. The fact that Abraham is choosing to bury Sarah in Canaan actually shows faith in the promises of God, that this is to be their land, that his descendants after him will dwell here. He is purchasing land in Canaan, a land that he's just a sojourner. He's a foreigner. Yet this is where he desires to bury his wife. And so he appeals for a burial plot in the land of Canaan. And so this is actually an exercise that shows faith or an act that shows faith on the part of Abraham. Here, they did, not yet, they did not yet possess Canaan. Like Abraham said, I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner. He has to make an appeal for a burial plot. So just imagine, if you will, or picture it. Abraham is a sojourner in a land that has actually been promised to him at a later time. But right now, he is just a sojourner. He is just a foreigner. And he has to go out and make a plea for a plot just to bury his wife. But he is in a land that later his descendants will actually possess. 
hold on to that for when we make our general observations later. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, that's exactly what was said in verse 4. I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us, or a mighty prince among us. Second thing to note. This is not the first time that others, people outside of Abraham's family, pagans, those who do not acknowledge God, have yet made note of the fact, and they have acknowledged that there is something, to put it very simplistic, probably overly simplistic, there's something special about this Abraham guy. There's something... uh, there's something present in his life where it just seems like he has an extra dose of, of favor. Like he, he, he's a leader. Uh, he is blessed. Uh, he has cattle, livestock, a growing family. Uh, clearly, the hand of God is upon him. He's a mighty prince. A prince of God. And these are others. These, at this time, it's Hittites that are acknowledging this. They aren't worshipers of the one true God of Israel. They don't follow him, but even they not. You're a mighty prince among us. There is favor on you. Just pick a cave, pick a field, pick a cave. We'll give it to you. So we note that in the life of Abraham, we'll make this point once more. In the life of Abraham, God had called Abraham. God had given promises to Abraham. God had shared some of his plans with Abraham and, and what he was going to do, how he was going to bring things about. And God always accomplishes what He sets out to accomplish. Even when Abraham and Sarah took a misstep, when they lacked faith, God is still working all things according to the counsel of His will. And on top of that, it is evident. It's so evident at times that even outsiders look upon Abraham and have to say, well, clearly the hand of God. Now, they might have been saying, clearly the hand of a God is upon you. But clearly, the hand of God is upon you. There is some sort of supernatural favor that is, that is on you. And other people took note of that as well. They offer him, just pick a cave. But Abraham insists, I will purchase the cave. In fact, he has a specific place in mind. And he says, go get Ephron, the son of Zohar, for the cave of Machpelah. And even Ephron says, just take the cave. Like, just take the field and the cave. Just take it. Now, (coughs) it could be that that offer, that generous offer, isn't quite as generous as it may seem at first. It could be that the offer was made, well, I gave it to you. I can take it back whenever I want it. Abraham here is being wise. He's being intentional and saying, I will purchase it. That way there's no confusion. There's never a way that that Abraham could lose this field or lose this cave later on. He's going to purchase it. It's going to be his. And that's the next thing that we're going to make a note of here. As far as things recorded for us in Scripture, land that Abraham possessed, land that belonged to Abraham. This is the first little plot of Canaan that was Abraham's. Now, it won't be until many years after this that the land of Canaan is overtaken by the Israelites. But here, 
And just this little burial plot, this little field, this little cave, we have the, the beginnings or the first mark that, okay, this is a part of the promise. Abraham has just purchased a plot of land. This land is Abraham's. And it starts small. Just a tiny, maybe an insignificant plot of land to bury his wife. But we know what's coming because of the promise of God. Because of the promise of God, we know that at some point, this land is going to belong to the children of Abraham. But how did it start? It started with the very first little plot of land in Canaan that belonged to Abraham. And that was just this field, this cave in Machpelah. That he purchased for 400 shekels of silver. Nevertheless we have our first little glimpse. At the physical fulfillment of Abraham. Possessing Abraham and his descendants possessing the land of Canaan. And I want us to note that. Again. You've heard me repeat this a million times. God is faithful. God told Abraham there was a land that he was preparing for him. And it was so. God said that Abraham would become the father of a great nation. And it was so. God told Abraham that him and Sarah would have a son. Again, not him and Hagar. Him and Sarah. And it was so. Isaac has been born at this point. God told Abraham that all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Through him. Now that has not happened yet, of course. But we know. In Genesis it hasn't already happened, but we know it has indeed happened because it is through Jesus Christ, the true promised Son, that all of the nations are blessed. The hope of the gospel, the gift of salvation, which goes out to all the nations. And how did that start? Where, what is that promise connected to? That promise that the Savior would be, would be born through a particular line. Where, where was that origin? Where was that Genesis? Abraham. In you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. If we were to look at the genealogy of of Jesus Christ, we could actually trace it all the way back to Adam. Not just Abraham. Adam. Because that promise is connected to another promise, which God, or a guarantee that God told the serpent, that the serpent's head would be crushed. Through the seed of the woman. And so again, do not miss this. You don't... As your pastor, I don't expect you to remember every last little detail that ever got brought up in our study of Genesis. I'll fill you in on a little secret. I don't remember every last little thing I've preached as we've gone through the study of Genesis. So please don't ask me to remember those things. But I've said it before, I'll say it again. I want us all to, at the very least, to see the great big grand picture of redemption that is all throughout Genesis, but not just Genesis, all throughout all of Scripture. All of the promises of God, all of the promises of God that are yes in Jesus, are ultimately connected, traced all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3. All of it. And this purchase of the cave of Machpelah is just another small step heading in the direction of the fulfillment of Of all of these promises that God had given to Abraham. 
His people will possess the land. And later on, many years after that, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Because there will be a son born to a Mary and Joseph and his name will be Emmanuel. And because of his life, his crucifixion, his burial and his resurrection, all who believe, people from all over the earth, every tribe, tongue and nation, all who turn to him and believe will be saved and therefore all of the nations of the earth are blessed through the line of Abraham, through the line of Israel. So, Again, staying true to my word, we've made a couple or three brief observations from this exact text here. You see Abraham's faithfulness. He desired to purchase a a burial plot for Sarah in Canaan. It's a sign of faith. It shows faith. We see that even the people around, they acknowledge, you're a prince among us. You're a prince of God among us. You see that there's something different about Abraham, which that just points to God's faithfulness to accomplish all that He has promised to Abraham. God is faithful. God is good. God accomplishes all that He intends to accomplish. And in purchasing a small plot of land from Canaan, we see the beginning of the the actual physical fulfillment of Abraham and his descendants possessing the land, the promised land that God has prepared for them. But it starts small. It won't be until many years after this that the land of Canaan is taken by Israel. So with that thought in mind, we're going to start we're going to go now to some general observations. As I was prepping for this sermon, I, again, I'll just be transparent with you as as your pastor. There's certain passages of scripture I've talked about this before. There's certain passages or chapters of scripture that we read them and we even study over them and we come away thinking well, there's not a whole lot going on there. And this is one of those chapters. You say, well, Sarah died. Needed, to, needed a place to be buried. Abraham bought a place. and It shows faithfulness. It shows this. It shows that. And sometimes as a pastor, my responsibility is to say, okay, well, what things need to be said? What things could be said? What do I want to bring up? Do I have to bring that up? No, I could probably save that for another time. Or that, That's not necessary. I don't need to make that connection. And you shape a sermon. And I'll be honest, in going through this one, this was one of those, if I can just be totally transparent, I read a chapter like this and it, I have thought sometimes, that, well, this isn't the most exciting thing to preach through. It's pretty cut and dry. But as I sat there thinking and considering some stuff, again, these, these general observations came to mind. Abraham here bought a very small plot of land, which we knew later... They were going to possess the land of Canaan. Not just a tiny little spot, but the land of Canaan. And the parable of the mustard seed came to mind. If you'll turn to Matthew 13. And this still is going to be connected to the life of Abraham. But again, I've, I've said up front that no, I don't believe that this is a direct connection. Like, oh, from Genesis 23... We must think about these things. But it will be connected to the life of Abraham nonetheless. Because Abraham had to exercise faith. He purchased the land in Canaan. We've seen through the study of the life of Abraham that his faith has indeed grown. In fact, 
grown and matured so much that when God asked him to sacrifice his own son Isaac, Abraham didn't hesitate. He got the stuff ready, went up the mountain, he was going to sacrifice Isaac. We also, we as believers today, we have a promise of eternal glory, eternal life with the Father and with our Savior forever. Right? We have that promise. We haven't realized that promise yet. Unless something really odd and strange is going on. I really don't think any of us here right now. You're not also in your eternal state right now. Right? We're just here. There's none of y'all that, are, that have already entered into eternal glory already. Good. I'm glad none of us are that confused. Okay? But it is a promise that we cling to. Correct? We also have a promise of a new heavens and a new earth. Correct? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're not actually, we haven't actually possessed and are a part of the new heavens and new earth as of yet. No. We are awaiting all things to be purified, all things to be, uh, to be cleansed. We're awaiting for all sin to be perfectly judged and eradicated and done away with so that we can dwell in glory forever. That's a promise that we hold. But it's a new heavens and a new earth. We know as believers that we will reign with Christ. Hasn't happened yet. But we know that it will. We're told that we will reign with Him. We're told that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Hasn't happened fully yet. But we do know this. We also know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is Lord and He is reigning right now. Before He ascended, what did He say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's a done deal. We know that Jesus Christ the Lord is reigning right now. And He is waiting till all enemies are made His footstool. Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. We also know that we have a promised hope. A bodily resurrection. We know that we have a promised hope that we will be with Him where He is at. He actually prayed that to the Father in John 17. But we are in, again, we are in that in-between state. We're saved. We're redeemed. But we're not home yet. We're saved. We're redeemed. But we're not in the promised land yet. So to speak. But we hold on to that promise. We cling to that promise. That promise is our hope. And we are sojourners right now. We are sojourners in a land that is not our own. But there is coming a day where we will possess all the earth. We will reign with Christ over the new heavens and the new earth. It's not here yet. Right now we're just sojourners here. But there is coming a day where all things will be ours through Christ. So what do we do while we're in between? And how do we how do we know that God really is making good on that promise? How did Abraham really know that God was making good on that promise? What do we do when we doubt that promise? What do we do when our faith is weak? I know that I just went through a lot of details there. I threw a lot of stuff out there. But I hope by the time we're done with this, you'll see that it all connects here. We start with the parable of the mustard seed. Matthew 13, verse 31. 
He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like this. When Christ was here on this earth, He had His twelve disciples. There were others that followed Him, but even at His crucifixion, even the disciples doubted and gave up. And, and well, He's dead. But after His resurrection, He appeared to them. And then He appeared to many more, but He appeared to them. We have the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and He says that all authority is in heaven and on earth is given to Me. But from, tw- from those twelve disciples... Just a few pages later in Scripture, when you get to the day of Pentecost, you have 3,000 souls that are added to the kingdom. But from those 12, the kingdom kind of kicks off. The church age kind of kicks off. But it was very meager in how it started. Almost as meager as a mustard seed. One of the tiniest of all seeds. But once you plant it, that plant could grow to be 10 or 12 feet tall. Regardless of how it started out, it grows to become substantial. It grows to become large. So it is with the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus Christ walked this earth, and even if we were to go to Isaiah 53 and read about uh, the the passion, we're told that uh, He wasn't noteworthy. Nobody took note of Him. Nobody looked upon Him and thought great things. He was rejected by His own. Insignificant. He just had the twelve and a handful of others. And even if you go to the day of Pentecost in the upper room, there was about 120 people. Very meager beginnings, but we're told that the kingdom of heaven is like that mustard seed and it grows. So if we take that into consideration, we say, well... The church age, or the church, the the reign of Jesus, even the the um, his kingdom, started very small. But after his resurrection, after the gospel went through all of Jerusalem, and even to the ends of the earth, even still today, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are being added to the kingdom, and so it started in one place. Very small, very meager, but the kingdom has been expanding. The kingdom has been advancing ever since. And the result of that is that in glory there will be an innumerable multitude. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation singing praise to God because salvation belongs to God. An innumerable multitude. That's pretty great, right? From... 12 to 120 in the upper room to when it's all said and done, an innumerable multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation praising God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, we're alive in a, in a day and age right now where this even came up briefly towards the end of Sunday school. There's so much going on in the world today that can bring us down where we think, oh man, things are getting worse and worse and things are getting, things are getting badder and badder. To use some bad grammar there. They're just getting worser and worser. My goodness. And it's easy to get down. It's easy to get discouraged. 
But as a Christian, it actually becomes kind of difficult sometimes. We look out at what's going on in the world today, and we may think to ourselves, God, how is this a part of your plan? God, how is this? Is the kingdom still advancing? (laughs) Is the Lord still on the throne? Because I, I look at this wickedness, and I look at this, and I just see evil and wickedness everywhere. And God, what are you going to do about it? And when are you going to do it? It's hard for us to keep a positive, but more important than being positive, it's hard for us to keep a biblical mindset sometimes with everything going on in the world. But at the end of the day, everything going on in the world is biblical. If you go to the Scriptures, you say, oh, well, no surprise here. But furthermore, you say, not only is there, is there no surprise here... What's going on in the world today does nothing to stop the advancement of the kingdom of God. There are are souls still being saved each and every day. There are saints still being edified each and every day. And the kingdom is still like that mustard seed and it's still growing and it will continue to grow and it will ever grow until the end of the age when the result is innumerable multitude of people who have been saved from every tribe, tongue, a nation. Another way to look at it, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that <clears throat> that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. What does leaven do to bread? What does it cause it to do? We'll see how many people are awake. Causes it to rise. Okay? So the kingdom is like leaven. It starts and little by little, you see that bread rising until the end result has been accomplished. So it is with the kingdom. It's growing. It's expanding. Getting larger. It's advancing until the desired result. And nothing can stop that from happening. Nothing can hinder that. So much so. You say, Caleb, I hear what you're saying and I want to agree with it. But, oh, I just look at what's going on in the world today. And I I feel like maybe it's been hindered a little bit. Like maybe, maybe things aren't exactly the way that they... Need to be. That's why we started our entire service today in Matthew 16. What did Jesus tell Peter? You're Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Is there any force on earth? Is there, evil, is there any evil or wickedness on earth? Satan himself. Is He strong enough to overcome the power and the plan of Jesus Christ and of the Father? No. Is there any chance whatsoever for Satan to gain the upper hand? No. It's not going to happen. How do we know that to be true? Because His head, the head of the serpent, was crushed upon the cross. Satan has already been defeated. You say, well, if Satan has already been defeated, why is there so... We're still alive. In fallen creation, the effects of sin are still clearly seen. Does that mean that Satan has the power or Satan has control? No, because what did Jesus Christ say before He ascended? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who has full authority in heaven and on earth? Jesus Christ the Lord. Let there be no doubt about that. The gates of hell will not prevail against His church, His bride, the true body of Christ. 
the life of a Christian truly is a, it's a victorious life. And for us as believers, we cannot fall into the pattern of walking around like, well, I'm a Christian and I know God's in control, but oh, this stuff going on in the world today, it just makes me sad. Make, oh man, this is, this ain't the world that I want to grow up in and this ain't the, oh man, I don't want to do, I don't want to live here. I, the sooner I can get to heaven, the better. No, the kingdom is still advancing. God is still accomplishing all that He intends. We as Christians are to be optimistic. More importantly than being optimistic, we're to be sober-minded. We are to think biblically, to think scripturally. Yes, it's getting, it's getting bad out there in the world. Does any of that stop God from saving? Does any of that hinder the power of the gospel? No. Now, we are also, to make another connection between us and Abraham, that's the kingdom. It's like a mustard seed. It's like leaven. It grows. We know that. We haven't fully realized it yet, but we have that promise. The kingdom is advancing. There will be a result of an innumerable multitude in heaven. Singing praises for eternity. We will be with Christ where He is. The gates of hell will not prevail. We have those promises. Back to us. We're in that in-between state. We're sojourners in a land that's not ours. Right? Our citizenship is in heaven. If you think of yourself solely as a citizen of America... As just a part of the population of America, a population of the globe, you're wrong. As a believer, your citizenship is in heaven. This is not our home. Okay? Now, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second <clears throat> Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. This saying is trustworthy, for if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Okay. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. We are sojourners here in this land right now, and that takes endurance. What do we do with all that's going on in the world today? What, what do we do with all the discouragement? What do we do with all the negative, with all the negativity, with all the sin and the wickedness? Endure. Persevere. Have faith. The victory still belongs to God. The power and authority and control still is the Lord's. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And He is reigning. He's not trying to get on the throne. He's on the throne. Done. We endure. We persevere. And we don't do so with our heads hung low. Well, I've got to make it to the end. But oh man, no. We do it with our heads held high. God, you have us here for a purpose. You have us here for your glory. We are to be as, as, as lamps, as light, shining in a dark place. The kingdom is advancing. When we share the gospel, when we preach and proclaim the gospel, souls are being saved. You're drawing sons and daughters to salvation each and every day. We rejoice. We have faith in that. We have faith in that. You say, well, that's, that's just it, Caleb. I, I'm struggling to have faith in that. Have we forgotten that God is perfectly faithful? Have we forgotten that God accomplishes all that He intends? Have we forgotten that all the things that God has promised, He has made good upon? 
Look at his track record through Scripture. Look at his track record in your own life. Has God ever failed? Has God ever forgotten a promise? Has God ever abandoned His children? Has God ever left His children to starve? No. Remind yourself of God. When our faith is weak, we remind ourselves of our Savior. What did our Savior accomplish? Our salvation. He's the author and finisher, perfecter of our faith. He's freed us from our sins. What do we have to hang our heads about? We are more than conquerors through Him. Free from sin. Recipients of grace. We have received eternal life through Jesus Christ. What do we have to hang our Well, things just aren't the way that I would like them to be. And it would, it would, the world would be a whole lot better if all of this... Then tell people that message. Well, that's the thing. You tell people stuff and they don't want to hear it and they get upset with you and they say mean things. Tell them anyway, they nailed him to a tree. I think we can handle it if people get a little upset with us sometimes or hurt our feelings because they don't want to hear what we have to tell them. People need to hear the truth. Repent and believe. The world would be a whole lot better if there was less sin and wickedness. Can you explain to people why the world would be better? Because there is blessing in being obedient to God. There is, there is blessing and, and there is forgiveness in turning from sin and turning to God, turning to Christ. That there is only true happiness and true joy and true contentment in Christ, not in the pleasures and the sins of the world. Can we explain that to people? If we endure, we will reign with Him. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read quickly here from 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Working backwards, verse 9 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's what we're here for. How do we respond to everything going on in the world today? What do we do? How do we act in faith? Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Proclaim the excellencies of the Father to all those around us. We are sojourners. But we are sojourners who have the promise that the kingdom is advancing. That we have been left here for a purpose and we will be with Him in glory one day. So what do we do during our exile? Proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us. That is what we do. And we do so with faith and the promise that one day in that new heavens and the new earth, we will be with Him for eternity. We will be His and with Him for eternity. Even though it looks small now. Even though when the death, burial, and resurrection happened, it was just a small number of people. Even when it looks hopeless, as we go throughout our time of sojourning, and we're burying our dead, and we're losing our loved ones, and we're suffering and suffering and suffering, the promises still remain. And we keep our eyes and our hearts set upon those promises, and we proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into light. Because we have the promise. 
that not only we ourselves, and again, you don't have to turn here for sake of time. I'm just going to read this and we'll close. I promise you this really is the last thing I have written in my notes. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Take note of what we just read there. Creation itself. The grass, the dirt, the trees, the leaves, the animals, the skies. All of creation longs for the return of the Lord. Why? So that all of creation can be set free from the bondage to corruption. Corruption through sin. That is our hope. There is coming a day where not only only will we be spiritually set free from sin, but physically and all of this creation will be set free from corruption, from sin, purified, sanctified, made holy. Sin, perfectly judged and eradicated and done away with. That's our hope. It's not here yet. But we have faith and we trust in the goodness and the promises of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Patient endurance. Abraham bought that plot of land in Canaan and buried his wife there. Abraham did not live to see the day where his people fully possessed the land of Canaan. But that was a small little step or act of faith that, okay, God, you've promised us this land. I'm going to bury Sarah here because I know that this is our land. He was a sojourner in a land that his family would one day possess. We are sojourners in a creation that one day all of us through Christ will possess. We will reign with Him in glory. But for the time being, we're sojourners. There will be days where we lack faith. There will be days where we aren't really trusting in the promises of God. And we must remind ourselves, it is God who is faithful. And as long as God is faithful, then we should remain in the faith, strong in the faith, that we should grow in our faith. As long as He is faithful, then we should turn away from doubt and fears and anxieties. Because if our God is faithful, then there is nothing that will keep Him from accomplishing His good and perfect plans and purposes, not only for us, His people, but for all of creation. If God remains faithful, we have no reason to lack faith.
We should be growing and maturing in the faith each and every day. And what does that look like for us at times? Sometimes it looks just as simple as going through different stages of life. We lose a loved one. We take care of that loved one. and We go through the process of burying them and continuing on in our journey of life. Day in, day out, living. Sometimes, like chapter 23 in Genesis, we might feel like, well, my life isn't very exciting right now. There's not a whole lot going on right now. But if we really think about it, and we bring ourselves back to the promises of God, we say, oh no, there's a lot going on here. God's still being faithful. I still have opportunities to exercise my faith and to grow in the faith. God's still using me for His glory. It's life as usual. The life of a believer. Walking and living in the promises of God. Walking and living as a child of God who now at this time we have received all of the the blessings and the promises of God which are yes in Jesus. We have the promise of eternal life. The promise of resurrected bodies. The promise that sin will be eradicated and judged. The promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And the promise of eternal glory. It's not here yet. But because it is a promise of God, it is certain. And it is absolute. And we rest our souls in the faithfulness of God. And the faithfulness of the Son who has saved us. And brought peace between us and the Father. Thank you all for listening well as usual.